And welcome back. So our first question, it says, in making major decisions, God opens doors, but after I follow, events started to go wrong. The church says God, the door opens, it's God. The door closes, it's, it's not God. Um, in prayer, I felt God was telling me um, that, I, and I was following him, but then others around me rejected him when they rejected me. This has happened two times in my life. If it's really God's direction, everything would work out, right? Am I believing a false idea of how God works? Um, what is a healthier way? So yes, um, what we talked about in class today, when we follow God's leading, our responsibility is not to make a decision based on how it worked out, but whether we're fulfilling the calling that God has called us for. And many times, people who are following God's leading, it may not actually work out at that moment. For instance, Stephen's preaching, when we get to heaven and we say to Stephen, hey buddy, <laughs> How'd that work out for you down there on that sermon you gave uh, when he got stoned, okay? Or Paul, hey, how'd that work out for you? You ended up in Rome getting beheaded. How'd that work out for you? Uh, are they going to say, yeah, I wasn't really following. I, I don't, I, or were they saying, no, God had a plan, and, and I trusted God with my life, and he could use me in that way, and so forth. So the, the idea here is if you're following God, God may use you to present some truth that the person initially rejects, like these women who came back and reported at the tomb and they were a little bit put down and rejected, but that planted the seed that got the disciples to go investigate and get more evidence where they eventually accepted it. You may be working in a similar situation than that. Thank you for the powerful Bible study. My question regards people dying and waking up with the same train of thoughts. I wonder about people dying with sickness. Can I infer that they will wake up with their sickness, cancer, ugly sickness? Thank you for your insights. So this is a question that comes up a lot. We aren't specifically told, but we, but we do know that the, and we're assuming these are the wicked dead because the righteous will rise in immortality and, and perfection in the heavenly body. So this is the wicked dead at the end of the thousand years. We aren't told specifically, but we do know they will not rise rise in immortal bodies. Uh, they will not rise uh, with the corruption being taken away of all the genetic and, and aging and all that kind of stuff. However, it makes no sense to raise somebody who died at the end of of a long course of Alzheimer's dementia who was lost and they, they and they just awake out of the grave with a body that is basically in a comatose state, but it's got a heartbeat. So there has to be some restoration. And I think the, in my view, the way that works is God winds the timeline back on their life to the point where they have cognizance and awareness of their life and brings them out of the grave at that point to see the truth and reality and finish their life with the decisions they'll make in the face of the new Jerusalem coming down. But they will still have bodies, and some people will probably still have pain conditions and other sick conditions that do not interfere with their ability to cognate the truth. What's the point of the story in 1 Kings 13? It seems unfair to me that this prophet was, was uh, deceived uh, and killed. Um, the prophet that was deceived was killed, and the liar, um, which called him self a prophet, of God goes on with that repercussion. Well, I think the, st the, the story is there exactly for, for what it is. Both of these individuals, just like Stephen, was willing to be used by God to give a sermon, and then the consequence of that, he was stoned, and Paul was used by God as well as the other apostles, and Peter was crucified upside down. They don't look back at that and say, oh, I really shouldn't have been your man. I wish I would have not been on your side. No, they, they, they aren't happy about 
the way they were treated by people, but they had joy in the mission they were carrying out for the Lord. My view is that both the old and the young prophet in this in this story were both men of God, and they both went on stage to carry out an enactment to teach a powerful lesson. And the enactment was the young prophet got directions directly from God on what he was to do. The old prophet came along and lied to him for the purpose of demonstrating for every single one of us that we have a responsibility to answer God's calling in our life and not let somebody else who also may be called of God tell us what to do. Example in the New Testament, Peter was an apostle and Peter was called of God and he was wrong on an issue and Paul had to correct him on it. If we take the approach, well, he's a prophet, I better listen to the prophet, then we may be led astray and we are not to surrender our own thinking to the prophet. And this was a very important lesson that I think both of God's friends were willing to participate in, including the one who got killed by the lion, said, I'm glad to have let my life give such a good lesson so that so many people wouldn't be duped down the road. I feel hesitant when I refer to Jesus as God's son and avoid emphasizing it. I worry that if people don't have a clear view of the three-person Godhead, they could be left with the impression that God the Father sent someone else that is his son to do the dirty work and to be a sacrifice. I know the truth is that it was a mutual decision of God. I also know that Jesus is God. How can we avoid communicating wrong ideas when we say God sent his son? By emphasizing that it was God... Jesus said, if you see me, you've seen the Father, the Father, I are one. I think if you do anything to diminish the idea that Jesus was anything other than God the Son, that you're actually diminishing the entire purpose of why he came. Because if God would have sent an angel, then your concern or fear here would be true. He sent an angel to protect himself, but God himself came. And which member of the Godhead came? That was amongst the three of them. And I can go into reasons why it was Jesus, because the allegations were not against the father, the allegations of Lucifer were against the son, and Lucifer came claimed equality with the son, not equality with the father. And so Jesus came as because he was our creator, all things were made by him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. So Jesus created this planet, created human life and the image of God. It was made through him. And when it became corrupted, Jesus took the responsibility to demonstrate that he is not a power monger. He's not a person who lords over, that even though he has all power, he doesn't abuse it. And this is what you see in his life. He demonstrates the truth of the Godhead, sacrificing himself to save us. And in Revelation, Every time you see the spotlight above, the angels are going, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He's worthy to have all power because he's proven he's safe with all the power in addition to providing what's needed for our salvation. So I would absolutely emphasize Jesus is the son of God, but he's also God fully himself. The traditional Adventist interpretation of the great disappointment is that Jesus entered the most holy place rather than returning in the second coming as expected. My view of, of, on the sanctuary has shifted to that which is made out without human hands, the sanctuary that is each one of us. How do you interpret the prophetic timeline that ended in 1844? What do you think happened at that time? So I will give you an overview, but if uh, you would like an, an Adventist understanding of this, uh, go online and read our online, or you might request it, but they're both there, um, The Investigative Judgment for the Modern World magazine. If you wanna read these ideas from a from a perspective that doesn't have a lot of the Adventist quotations in it, then um, the ideas are presented in um, The Wedding of Christ to His Bride. Same, same concept. 
But why 1844? Why the significance? Because God, looking down the quarters of time, says to his friend Daniel, way back when Daniel was alive, he gives him a prophetic view of what's going to happen. He says sometime in the future is going to be a little horn power. That little horn power is going to come up in war with the saints. But, he, but the war with the saints is not a physical war. It's a spiritual war. And he's going to be winning against them until discernment or judgment is given to the saints. Paul brings the same truth out when he, in Thessalonians he says that uh, the end will not come to the man of sin is revealed, that man of perdition who sets himself up against God's law of everything that is righteous and sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. And so the, the Bible is telling the case that that even though the truth is going to come, even though the Son of Man, this is all in one prophecy, Jesus is going to come, he's going to achieve what the sacrificial system says, do away with the oblation and sacrifice, provide the truth, that in the aftermath of that, there'll be a counterfeit that rises, this man of the man of sin. He's going to displace Jesus out of the hearts and minds, the spirit temple, and he's going to set himself up uh, in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. That's the little horn power. And it's going to be 2,300 years from this particular time until enough truth is recovered that the spirit temple can be cleansed of these lies about God and the end can come. And so 1844 was the time when the final movement began to begin calling people back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, design law worship, creator worship, and reject the imperial dictator view of God that set himself up in the spirit temple. And that's when the final message started and Satan's been working now against this final message. And that's the cleansing of the sanctuary, cleansing of the inmost beings, part of our being so that we are at one with God again. That's atonement, cleansing of the bride. And we describe that in two different magazines. So this person is resubmitting the, the thing from last week where I didn't fully understand it's simply um, that evil originated with Lucifer and that Lucifer was, was the highest created being, the covering cherub, and that only Christ could defeat him. I don't have any problems with what you've stated here. I think that's right. Christ was the one to defeat him because Lucifer claimed equality with Christ in this great controversy. And in fact, Jesus and Lucifer share a name. When you read in the New Testament, Jesus is the bright and morning star. That's the Greek phosphorus translated into the Latin Lucifer. Lucifer means light bearer, and Jesus is the light that lightens all men. So, G so Lucifer claimed equality with Christ, and only Christ could refute the lies that were made about him. So you're exactly right. Christ is the only one who could do it. Dr. Jennings, what does it mean to surrender to Christ? The problem of sin and evil happens in human hearts, and I want you to get your mind around this. You cannot use power, might, and authority to crush fear and selfishness, to extinguish it, to eliminate it. The more power and threat and intimidation you bring on people externally, the more fearful they get, not the less. The only way for evil to be removed from hearts is for it to be surrendered freely. We have to surrender our fear, our selfishness, our me first ways. We have to surrender this, our hearts and the things that, that we do to compensate for those fears to Christ and receive a new heart and right spirit. And that's the only way to change me. So surrendering means to surrender the self-centered, fear-driven, me first ways and accept a new heart and right spirit from Christ. Says, I'm a custodian at a school with my mom. We have an older lady who is lead custodian. However, she leads by, uh, she never leads by example. Instead, is always on our toes about making sure 
Um, every T is crossed, an I is dotted, very level four moral development. Anytime we call her out on the toxic workplace environment she creates, she, she'll run off and play victim with the principal and say that my mom and I are bullying her. How is it that I address this behavior without setting her off? Well, I'm making an assumption because it's not stated that you guys are not volunteers, but employees. And therefore you're paid. And when you're paid, then this is no longer a spiritual issue per se. It is a workplace issue because when you accept employment for somebody and they have a particular way, they want the floor vacuumed or the, or the dishes stacked in a rack and it might be silly to you, it's not a moral issue. I want the, 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 the carpet vacuum north to south, not east to west. There's no moral issue there. And if they're paying you to do it, then you do it north to south. And they come in and see it's east to west, and they say, oh, nope, that's not the way I want it. Do it the other way. And you feel like you're being um, uh, um, um, mistreated because T's and I's, all these little technical stuff. They're paying you. That's what they're paying you to do. You have to meet the standard that the employer sets on a non-moral related issue. And if you don't like it, find another job. Now, if this is a volunteer, that's a different issue. If you're volunteering your time and being treated this way, that's a whole nother. But I'm assuming this is an employment position. And if so, um, there are many employers out there. Now, if the person is just caustic and mean-spirited and just nitpicking and finding fault for, for not actually, they have a standard, you're meeting the standard, but it doesn't matter that you meet the standard, they're still finding fault. That's a different issue. And I would still tell you to find another job. That's a toxic workplace environment. Could you share your thoughts on intercessory prayer? Does prayer really change God's mind or allow him to act in ways that uh, he would not otherwise have uh, been able to do? Does the issue in the great controversy and the truths about God's character shed light on why intercessory prayer is important? First off, I don't believe prayer changes God's mind or heart at all. God always has the same heart and goal, and that's the salvation of souls. What prayer does it connects you with God for conversation so we can be changed by that process, number one. But you may say, well, there's examples. He didn't want to have kings, and they begged for kings, and he gave them. He didn't want to have quail. They begged for quail. Yes, because God's goal was their best interest, their health, their welfare, their salvation. And they came to the point in their rebellion that they were going to break all contact with God and do it their own way if he didn't give in to their demands. And so even though they were going to be harmed by their own choices, God gave in because he knew that when they got harmed, they would need him to help fix the damage and ultimately lead them to salvation. And so, yes, you will see it appears on the surface that he's uh, changing his mind. He's not changing his mind at all. And the damage comes, and it actually demonstrates that he was right all along. The issue of, of acting, you can find indications of this to be true because God respects our freedom. And so if one person is saying, I don't want you in my life, and another person is, is praying, God, bring to bear in their life things that can win them, the best opportunities, you know their heart, work in their life. Uh, God, I think, honors those prayers and works in people's lives. And you see that in, the in I think it's the 10th chapter of Daniel, when uh, Daniel begins to pray and Gabriel is dispatched uh, to help Darius, who is being accosted by one of the demons, the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, 
and uh, Gabriel is resisting the influence, uh, trying to bring truth and love to bear on Darius's heart. Gabriel's doing that, and he's doing that at the, according to the scripture there at the request of Daniel. So, so I think, and you then you see the story of Elijah when the angel armies are about. Yes, I absolutely believe we can pray for angelic protection, for divine protection, for God's intercession in our hearts and minds, for wisdom to discernment. The Bible is very clear that our prayers have a real impact, but it's not changing God. God's mind, it's really putting us in a position to enable God to do what he would love to do in our lives all along anyway. At the close of a thousand years, uh, the second resurrection will take place. Then the wicked will be raised from the dead and appear before God. In your opinion, will the wicked be raised with the same type of bodies they had upon death, i.e. disease, crippled, paralyzed? Yeah, I think that's right. Yes, I think they will. In the story where Jesus cast out demons out of a man into pigs, the pigs ran into the lake and drowned. Is it correct to assume demons were then free from the pigs and remained in, in that area since the demons didn't want to be sent away? Is the method of a demon using the influence to influence the mind for evil the same method used by the Holy Spirit to influence a mind for good? The difference being the choice of the person. So first question. I don't believe in any type of intracellular occupation. When people say they're demon-possessed, I don't think inside the same physical matter there is another physical being living inside the, the, the human being or the pigs, for that matter. It is mental control, influencing the neurobiology for the person to say, act, feel, do, or whatever. And so possessing the pigs simply meant that they frightened the pigs and the pigs ran off. The demons didn't go anywhere. They stayed there. I don't, uh, and unless God puts a restraining hedge like you see with the angel armies and the, when Elisha was, uh, was talking about that angel armies, God will put hedges of protection around his people. But anywhere God is not restraining, you have demonic forces working. They're not off, locked away in some closet in some place of the inner core of the earth that people call hell or something like that. No, this is a spiritual battle. They're in some dimension that we can't actually see, just like the good angels, but they're around trying to do their, their evil wherever they can, and God put, sends his angels to hold them at bay or restrain them. But I think they were still in the area, and we're looking for anyone that would be willing to be influenced by them. Regarding the method a demon used to influence the mind, in the sense that both of them are influencing through what I believe are quantum entanglements or quantum energy links, and that that's how they do it, yes. But the difference is demons will always seek to take liberty. The Holy Spirit will always seek to restore liberty. Demons will seek to take away your freedom of choice and use fear and, uh, and intimidation to control you, where the Holy Spirit will seek to inspire you with love and leave you free to make your own decisions. And how do we come in tune with them? Our neurobiology is in a constant state of flux. Uh, whatever you read, watch, admire, esteem, you, uh, and the, the word of God that you put in and memorization changes your neurobiology and thus changes the harmonic frequency of how your brain resonates on a quantum level and brings you more and more in tune with the Holy Spirit where you can hear this still small voice and feel that impression, your conscience becomes more sensitive. I think some of you know that. As you've journeyed and spent more time with the Lord, you're more in tune and you can, conversely, if you spend time with the vile, the wicked, the ugly, the demonic, the, the, the evil, you actually change your neurobiology in a different direction and you become more in tune with the demonic spirits and their attitudes and energies. And it's more easy for them to whisper in your ear and to incite you to fear and so forth. And that's how I think they do it. 
What do you think of this? To accept by faith the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus as full payment for my sins and deliverance from here. So you have to answer these questions by what law lens are you reading through? Set by faith, so I trust, sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, full payment, okay, who's the payment being made to? If you understand that a payment is being made to deliver me, deliverance, I'm, I'm a captive, I'm a captive, what holds me in captive? Oh, the lies about God that I believe, then Jesus came and revealed the truth, and so if I accept the truth, then I can be set free, you know the truth, truth is set free, but I also have fear and selfishness, I have a carnal nature, but Jesus lived a perfect sinless life and developed a perfect nature, and he offers that to me so that I can partake of his nature, so it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, so the payment of Jesus' sacrifice is being made to me, to win me to trust by the truth, and to then give me a new heart and a new nature, then yes, you can believe that, that full payment for my sins made to me so that I am reborn in Christ's likeness. But if you think it's being made to God in heaven to buy him off so he won't kill you, then that's paganism. Mm -hmm. The earth was first destroyed by flood and water. At the end of the earth will be cleansed by fire. Why was the earth destroyed by water at Noah's time and fire at the end? So the fire at the end will ultimately be a cleansing fire to restore everything. Water at Noah's time, the why, I think it was because it was the way to bring about a change in the, in the entire, I would encourage you to go read our two blogs on, on the flood and why God, brought, why God brought it. And then you'll see there was a whole um, reasons that this was therapeutic and beneficial for the plan of salvation. And that's why water is used. But in, at the end, it's about cleansing and eradicating all evil. At the time of the flood, it was about keeping open the avenue for the Messiah, not eradicating all evil at that time because the Messiah still had to come in order to provide what's necessary to save any human being. So it wasn't an attempt to wipe out the sinful world and replace it with a new one, which happens at the end of time. It was about limiting the destructiveness of evil on the world. So thank you again for the powerful Bible study. I have a question about fear. Are there different types of fear or the one and only that all human beings that do not know Jesus suffer from? So the, the word fear can have different meanings. It can. And so you have to be just like the word love. We can say, I love my car. I, 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 I uh, have erotic love. I, I, I love uh, my brother, brotherly love. I have agape love. So there's lots of different, love can have new, different meanings as well. Fear can have different meanings, and it depends on what you mean. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, or fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. This type of definition does not mean terror, dread, anxiety. It means awe, reverence, and respect. So it depends on what we mean when we use the word fear. The type of fear that is part of the infection of sin is the fear that turns us self-centered, turns us insecure, makes us anxious, paralyzes, leads us to, to, to uh, exploit others to benefit ourselves. That type of fear is the fear of sin. In Luke 1, Zechariah was said to be righteous in the verse. He was afraid of the appearance of the angel. I thought after becoming righteous, fear uh, is out of the heart. Thank you. Again, they're not controlled by fear. 
That doesn't mean you don't have startle responses. Again, look at all of the righteous people. When an angel shows up, their initial reaction is to startle, and the angel says, fear not. That That is not being controlled by fear. They're not selfish in trying to compensate for their fear-driven, me-first attitudes. That's what changes. It's not that they might not get startled. All right, let's close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for all that you provided. We thank you for the perfect love that will cast out the fear that we can be restored to trust in you and live transformed lives. We pray in your holy name, amen.